My name is Luke. Uh, I'm a pastoral apprentice here at uh, the church. I'm on the teaching team with uh, Gentry and Josh. My son Leo is here somewhere. Um, you've probably seen him running around. Uh, we're going to continue this week in the Philippians letter from Paul uh, in our sermon series titled To Live is Christ. So if you have a Bible, I hope you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. What we've seen here kind of thus far is that Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter. He's, he's writing to the church at Philippi saying like, hey, I'm good. I'm okay. Um, he says, the things that actually have happened to me have turned for the furtherance of the gospel. He says that uh, the whole palace guard has seen evidence of Paul's faith in Christ. You don't see a lot of prison talk. It's not really kind of complaining about prison as I know I would. Paul actually says his chains are in Christ. So today, we're going to view Paul's perspective through prayer. A story about perspective, true story. Uh, Leo and I leave in the mornings on weekdays, Monday through Friday, about 7 a.m. to get him to school in East. We live in Bellevue, so it's about a 22-minute journey um, leaving at 7 a.m. So a few months ago, as we're driving about 7.06, 7.07, when usually it's flowing at that time, it starts to happen. The cars swell up and they get bigger and bigger and they stack up. Now there's an ocean of red brake lights. What's happening at 7.06 in the morning? And we come to a grinding standstill. I put my car in park on I-40. And so after about 10 minutes, I decide, what's going on? Okay, so I pull out my phone and I get a different perspective. Open up Google Maps, get the bird's eye view, and I see that, oh, there's a traffic accident 2.6 miles ahead. An hour and 45 minutes later, we passed the accident. Now I have these feelings of like stress and disappointment. My son has a huge test that day. I have meetings lined up all day. This has wrecked my day, right? And again, about an hour 45 later, as we pass the wreck, all of a sudden I see that it's a fatal crash. And now my thoughts of stress and disappointment have turned into thoughts of prayer care, concern for my fellow man. Oh, how precious I'm thankful for my cargo, Leo, that's in my car. My perspective changed. That's kind of sort of how God's perspective is. See, God thinks from the vertical. We tend to think from the horizontal. We tend to think from the view of the dashboard. We watch the parade go by in our lawn chairs on the side of the street. God watches it from the skyscraper. He sees where everybody gathers beforehand, where they're going during, and where they go after. God's perspective is sovereign. Mine is not. And prayer is how we get a better view of God's perspective. So Philippians chapter 1, we're in verses 15 through 19. 
It'll be on the screen behind me. Would somebody be willing to read that? I have no backup plan if no one wants to read it. Sharon's going to help me out. Sharon, thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Man, you're a good reader. I'm a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> <gonna> come up. <laughs> let's, um, let's get our perspective of what's going on in these passages, okay? Let's get our horizontal perspective. Let's take this at this moment beyond the black ink on white paper, okay? So we know up to this point, Paul has already stood before a line of governors, a king, and now a Caesar. He's, he stood before already King Agrippa II, who comes from a line of bad, bad men, whose father is the one who martyred the apostle James, whose grandfather is the one that beheaded John the Baptist, brought it to a woman on a platter. His, grand, his great-grandfather is the one that tried to kill the infant Jesus. And now Paul is standing before Caesar Augustus. We better know him as Nero. He's the youngest of all the Caesars at the age of 16. He ruled for about 12 to 14 years, took the throne two decades after the crucifixion of Christ. He murdered Christians, he murdered his mother, and he, mar he murdered his uh, stepsister after he married her. Then he fled Rome whenever the Senate turned on him. That's who Paul is waiting to stand before. That's the setting. And where is he waiting? He's waiting in a real place, in a real prison that's called the Marentine Prison. Excuse me, I said that wrong. The Mamertine Prison. It's a real physical location. You can Google it. You can look at the images of it. You can travel. You can visit it. It's located in Rome below the Capilone Hill at the edge of the Roman Forum probably the same place where Peter awaited his execution, where he was crucified upside down. It's a grim, dark, dank, dingy dungeon. It's underground. The only way in is from one hole in the ceiling, which is also the only source of light. There's another hole in the ground, which is what their toilet is. We know by the times there's no running water, there's no electricity, Paul's unfairly chained, and he's awaiting trial. That's the scene. That's the perspective on our horizontal view. And adding to this, in these verses, Paul's talking about these fellow ministers, preachers. He says, some of them preach out of goodwill, some of them out of love. But others, from envy, strife, from selfish ambition, not sincerely. 
These preachers seemingly wanted to surpass Paul's ministry, kind of a, a spirit of competition, if you will. We see that today, don't we? Who's got the bigger church? Who's, who's got more members? Who's got more money in the church? Wrong motive. Worried about the successful image their own notoriety, seeking man's approval, but not God's. Paul says, they're supposing to add affliction to my chains. And you see Paul's perspective start to come into play a little bit here. He says in verse 18, as long as Christ is preached. It doesn't bug him. As long as Christ is is preached. Now, don't be confused. Paul, is, he cares about the context. The context is good. We know, as he says in Galatians, he says, if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. So I said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed, anathema, damned. The true definition. Paul says here, the context is good. It's the motive that's wrong. He says, I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, I could learn from that. We could learn from that. He says, in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. 16 times in this short four-chapter letter, he says the word joy, or rejoice. That's why it's nicknamed the epistle of joy. But he's writing from prison. You see the perspective. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness fluctuates. It moves up or down depending on what your circumstances of life are. Joy is steadfast. It is immovable. It is long-suffering when your house is built on the rock. That is joy. Paul says in verse 17, knowing that he is a defender of the gospel, knowing through the prayer of the Philippians and the spirit of Jesus Christ will turn out for his deliverance. Paul puts the power of prayer working together with the Spirit of Christ. Prayer is powerful. It is powerful. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the armor of God. There's seven pieces to the armor of God. A lot of us missed that last one. There's seven. He gives five defensive weapons and he gives two offensive the five defensive weapons he gives the helmet of salvation he gives the breastplate of righteousness he gives the shield of faith he gives the belt of truth and he gives the shoes of peace defense but then he gives two offensive weapons he says the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and then we miss that last one the heavy artillery of prayer prayer a wise preacher once said, prayer is a heat-seeking missile. You can fire it from anywhere in the world, and it never misses. 
So what is prayer? We've talked about that in here before a few times. What, what really is it? Maybe a simple definition, the desire, opportunity, and privilege to talk with God. Our prayers are related to the sovereignty of God. We've all probably seen or said or experienced this, where a preacher preaches and he gives a good word, maybe not today, but, but we say, man, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was speaking in the Spirit, right? We've all experienced that. It's the same with prayer. It's the same. This book teaches that. Prayer, it's God's provisions that we are praying for, are we not? We give praise, glory, honor, express our love to him, for him. We ask forgiveness of our sins, guidance, direction, deliverance from trials and troubles, not only for others, but for ourselves. We seek in prayer growth, wisdom, clarity, hearing, healing. We seek biblical understanding. Lord, thank you for loving me. Speak to my heart as I read your word. Do we not pray for salvation? Pain, joy, life, death. Gratitude for his grace. He is our wonderful counselor. And just like in the finite world, when you go to a counseling session, isn't the idea to leave changed? Isn't the idea to, to come out of the counseling session different than when you went in? Why would it be any different with the first and the last? The idea behind the prayer is that we're not the same person we were when we went into it as we are coming out. We, we get a different perspective. I was looking through the Bible and it's not easy to, or it's not hard to find prayer in the Bible. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayers in the Bible. And I was thinking, I wonder where the first prayer is in the Bible. You know, I wonder where someone is actually have a desire and a privilege of speaking with God. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just wonder who it was Adam was speaking to when he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Adam and Eve, as they're having this full-blown conversation with Yahweh in the garden, questions and answers. He did it, she did it. Hannah's heartfelt call to God as her lips move, but without a voice. In Samuel, you see God's sovereignty as he answers her prayer. She gives him a son, 
Samuel, who becomes the last judge, the first prophet, and plays a huge piece in the kingdom of God. But she's the one that asked for a son. Sovereignty, perspective. The Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer, but John 17, Jesus, the mighty intercessor. You want a fun scripture? Read John 17. Jesus prays for himself. Then he prays for his disciples. And finally, he prays for all believers. He says, they, we are one, just as the Father and the Son are one. They shall be one. We shall be one with us, Jesus says. Prayer and the spirit of Christ working together. Paul says he'll be delivered, he feels, from their prayers and from the spirit of Christ, the supply thereof. So the spirit of Christ. You want the Trinity? Here it is. Philippians chapter one, verse 19, says Jesus Christ is spirit. Genesis chapter one, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Jesus says on the first page of the book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy comes upon you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. And as Jesus prays to the Father, he says that we're included in that. Paul says that the spirit of Christ is actually in the Old Testament. He says this to Timothy, his young protege. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says this. Don't miss this. Paul says, from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you want to know, let people know how to get saved? Tell them to read the Old Testament. When the word scripture is used in scripture, it means what we refer to as just the Old Testament. They were, there was no New Testament. They were living it, writing it down. So when he says scripture, the holy scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament and that in there, it will make you wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. So let's dig into that. Let's look at the Old Testament with that perspective. Let's look at a section and a chunk of it. Torah, the law the first five books of the Old Testament. I know, we all know. Boring, don't get it, doesn't apply to me. I just, I just, I just, I just can't do it. Fair, fair. But think perspective. Lord, help me see from, from your view. So, 
Torah kind of says this. You have Genesis where God creates the heavens and the world and everything in it. He creates man in his own image. Man falls. God displays his perfect grace. And he says, I'm going to bless the world through a nation, through one man, Abraham. And then it goes on to Exodus. The salvation of God's people. God uses Moses to deliver his people from the slavery of Egypt. And he points them to the promised land. And then we go on to Leviticus, the sanctification of God's people where there's these, these, these rules and rituals and ceremonies where God's people can be holy as he is holy, but they don't go to the promised land yet. They go to the book of Numbers and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years 40, this number of trial and testing throughout the Bible. They experience setback, challenges, punishments. And then finally in Deuteronomy, the covenant of God's people, God promises his people before entering the promised land, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you. If you are unfaithful to me, I will curse you. He sends Moses, the Lord's servant, to deliver this covenant. And of course, Moses dies before entering the promised land. You say, great, awesome, good job, Luke, phenomenal. You've explained Torah basically in two minutes. But what's the perspective? What's the Google Maps view? Is it not the theme of the believer? Think about it. We are created. And then God saves us. Just as he used Moses, Jesus saves his people from the slavery of sin, pointing us to the promised land. And then we stop in Leviticus because Jesus, God wants his people to be set apart as a light to the world. But remember, Exodus comes before Leviticus because God usually redeems before he asks you of anything. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Created for his workmanship. There's an order. And then we, just like the sons of Israel, we don't go to the promised land. What are we doing? We wander in the wilderness. We go through trial, tribulation, trouble. In this world, you will have trial, Jesus says. But Jesus gives us the new covenant. And he says, if you're faithful to me, I will bless you if you're not faithful to me, I will curse you and say, depart from me. I never knew you. And just like Moses, we will die before entering the promised land. It's pretty sweet. It's a pretty cool view. But it's only through perspective and prayer 
that we can look at that like that. We can find God's sovereignty when we seek his perspective through prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of the pulpit, said this, and I quote, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. There is rest in God's sovereignty. There's rest. And the best rest is surrendered rest. There's no better teacher of that than Jesus Christ. Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me must what? Deny himself, pick up his cross and carry it daily and follow me. Paul said his chains were in Christ. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray? He said what? Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will. Thy will. Jesus prays in Gethsemane, sweating beads of blood. And he says, Father, not my will, your will. Do you see the perspective through that prayer? That's his perspective. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes ours. That's the point. You ever have a conversation with someone? Lakers, Nuggets, LA, Denver, what do you think? What do you think? This, this. And then after a different perspective, maybe your mind has changed. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. It changes ours. Joining his perspective. We become more like him. There's this lawyer who in Matthew chapter 22 is testing Jesus. I've always found that funny. It's like, how's that going to work? And Jesus says to him in Matthew 22, he says, you're to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. For the entire law is summed up in these two commands. A screenshot of the law, a quick Google Maps overview of the law is the Ten Commandments. Screenshot. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four deal directly with Yahweh. Think about it. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which has nothing to do with cuss words, by the way. We've missed that. And he says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. God says, me first. Then the last six deal with your fellow neighbor. Honor your father and mother. 
don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. Right? So when Jesus says, you're to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's the first four. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself, there's the last six. For the entire law is summed up in these two commands. Perspective. When we surrender to Christ, when we put God first, everything flows accordingly. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take 22 minutes to get to East from Bellevue. I may go a different route. But God is in control. He is not out of it. My son, Leo, I mentioned earlier, he's running around here. I love my son. He's going to be 12 on Friday. I love him. There's nothing I love more than my son. Hey, except for Jesus. I love Jesus more than my son. He knows that. Why? He's the gift. He doesn't belong to me. He belongs to God. God gave him to me. If any of you have ever, if we've ever spoken and you've heard my testimony, he was a gift that was given to me that I did not deserve. And out of chaos, he gave me a blessing. You see, you can't love the gift more than the gift giver. That's out of order. That breaks the first two commandments. That's idolatry. That's me putting something before God. There's a lot of parents in our church. There's a lot of young parents in our church. Man, you should see the nine. Dude, little people running everywhere. <laughs> There's a lot of future parents in this church. Spoiler alert for those old and those young, I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes. We make mistakes. I have made mistakes. But our Father, who art in heaven, holy be his name, he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. So I invite you today and the rest of our finite lives to join God's perspective through prayer. I'm going to invite you to get into small groups. It is invitational. You don't have to do it. Heart check. I used to not like it whenever the preach told us to get in groups. I was like, man, ah, I love it now. Here's why. Here's why. Number one, I've met people that either I don't know and I form a bond with them or I get together with somebody, it's like, I know you, like maybe we'll just get together. And I found, I found something out about them that I just didn't know. And then the following times we get together, we have more conversation. And two, the Lord will minister to you through his church, through his body of believers. I can't tell you how many times I'll be talking to somebody in a small group and then they say something and I'm like, oh, it's really good. It's really good. 
So it's an invitation. You don't have to. I encourage you. Discuss this one question as you get into groups here. Here's the question. It'll be on the board behind me. In your prayer life or in your life, what is your perspective of God's sovereignty? Think vertical. We might have to join Paul and and get out of that horizontal, get out of my, my Bellevue dash cam view. In your prayer life or just your life, what is your perspective of God's sovereignty? I've got the timer. Don't worry about it. Go ahead and circle up with those around you and discuss that question, and we'll come back together and take communion as a church after. Circle up. Have fun with it.